0: Lord you are big and you love us that makes us glad now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight for Jesus sake amen So you get turned down for the job. The person who ends up getting the job, you know, has questionable ethics. Or she breaks up with you and then very quickly she ends up dating a guy that everybody would agree is bad news. Or you get rejected from your dream school and then you find out that she got in. Or you have someone that you thought was a friend, then you log on to Facebook to see that This friend um, is going on a rant on their Facebook page about evangelical Christians and how backward and intolerant they are. We can probably all think of a time, even a concrete time, in which we've experienced something in one of those categories, some sort of rejection. So how do we feel? How do you feel when you're experiencing rejection like that? When somebody asks you about the one who rejected you, how do you respond? What do you say? When you're praying in the wake of rejection, what do you ask God for? I guess the question that I'm kind of driving at here is one that I think would become increasingly important for us to be able to answer as Christians the more we are rejected in society, and it's this. Is there a right and wrong way to respond to rejection, or are there better and worse ways to respond to rejection? We're looking at Luke chapter nine today. If you turn there with me, uh, we'll spend our time camping out there in the ninth chapter of Luke's gospel, maybe around page 970, in the Bible in the seat in front of you. In the Gospel of Luke so far, Jesus has experienced rejection over and over again. It started in his hometown of Nazareth where he was rejected by his own. All along the way, he's been rejected time and again by the Jewish authorities. And even in some Gentile places, he's done miracles only to be rejected by them. The rejection he's experienced has been pretty universal. All different sorts of groups of people have rejected Jesus. And now, in the 51st verse of Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that Jesus begins to head toward his final and ultimate rejection. The final and ultimate rejection is going to lead to his death in your place and in mine. Uh, And his disciples are there with him, and they're going to experience some rejection as a result of being with him. And so I want us to be thinking about how they respond to rejection and what that has to do with us as we respond to our own rejection and being associated with Christ. So I'm going to read here verses 51 through 56. Of Luke chapter 9. Please follow along with me. When the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of these disciples as they process rejection. After all, that's what we're doing in this whole series, this Marks of a Disciple series. We're exploring what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, an intentional follower of his who's forever becoming more like him. And we as a church believe that the Bible actually lays out some markers, some distinguishing characteristics of what a disciple or a follower of Jesus looks like. And we've attempted throughout this series to lay out 11 marks, we're calling them, um, that set one apart as a disciple of Jesus. And so just to recap... We started this in the fall, and we have picked it back up recently. We've organized these marks of a disciple in three concentric circles. The one at the center uh, we refer to as the upward dimension, that a disciple of Jesus joyfully submits to Christ. Then we've looked at this second circle that we've called the inward dimension within ourselves as people, and we've seen that a disciple walks by the Spirit. A disciple is grounded in Scripture, a disciple prays faithfully, and a disciple repents regularly. We've preached through each of those. And now, starting last week, we jumped into the third and final circle, the outward dimension. And we heard Pastor Craig preach last week that a disciple of Jesus loves others. And today, we're going to see that a disciple of Jesus extends grace. So there's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 that would be a perfect one to preach today, but I'm not preaching it. It's the one um, of the unmerciful servant, the one who gets forgiven this great debt that he never would have been able to pay, and then he turns around to his underservant and chokes him out until he can pay an even smaller debt, right? And what happens to that servant? When the master finds out what this servant has done, he prosecutes him to the fullest extent of the law because the message there is that it's a great, great sin to receive grace and then not pass on that grace to others. We want to be people who extend the grace that we've been given, um, But like I said, that's a perfect passage for this, but you've heard it preached well in uh, recent months. So um, I'm preaching a little different passage today to get at this same idea of extending grace. And we're going to be zeroing in on this passage we read in Luke 9 and talking about a specific situation in which we can extend grace. And it's the situation in which we've been rejected. We've experienced rejection. I think this passage has something in it for us. As to how we can be people who extend grace even in the face of rejection. So the way the passage lays out is this. First, Jesus and the disciples face imminent rejection. Then they actually experience some rejection. And then we see a response to rejection. So we'll just walk through the passage as it lays out there. You want to leave your Bible open to Luke 9 to follow along with us. So let's jump into the first part. Facing rejection, verse 51. Jesus refuses to back down from what will be the final phase of his rejection during his time on earth. Let me reread verse 51. It says when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That language of the days drawing near reminds us that none of this is happening by accident. That it's all happening according to God's plan and part of God's plan for his son Jesus is that Jesus would be rejected time and time again along the way, and ultimately in Jerusalem, where he will be killed. Um, Most of us, though, spend a significant amount of energy in our lives trying to avoid rejection, don't we? I I know several people, uh, young people, who in recent years have thought there was a chance that they were going to get cut from a certain team at the school, so they didn't even try out, just in case they would get cut. We do things like that in various forms to avoid being rejected, but here's Jesus, not just avoid, not, not avoiding rejection, but actually the wording there in verse 51 is that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, the place where he knows he's going to be ultimately rejected. What does it mean to set your face somewhere? It seems like there's some sort of determination about it. Uh, the image that popped into my mind was that of uh, one of my former teammates. Um, this is what I picture when I think of setting your face somewhere, okay? This is, um, what's being communicated when I see this face is, no matter what you put in my way, I will not be denied from the place that I'm trying to go, right? Some of you are looking at me like, oh, it's football. I can't relate. Um, But I know about how some of y'all are at Black Friday at Target when you're shopping and trying to get that last item, right? You've made this face, and On the way to Chick-fil-A, you're telling me you don't make this face when your kids are screaming in the back and Chick-fil-A is so far away? But you're like, I am not going to be denied my chicken. You can't pretend like I'm the only one who does that. Um, But here's Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem, the place where he knows that he's going to be killed for your sake and for mine. Um, He's not going to be denied from it, no matter what comes his way he's going to go to the place that he intends to go, and he's going to fulfill his destiny there. So, what's in this for us here in this first verse of our text? Maybe it's just this, that uh, Jesus' disciples are not going to escape the rejection that Jesus himself experiences in Jerusalem, right? Didn't Jesus say that you will be hated by all men because of me? And likewise, we will not. If we are followers of Jesus, we will not escape the rejection that comes with being a follower of his. In fact, it seems as though it's increasingly coming our way in coming years, that we may be increasingly rejected because of the faith. And the question for us, even right at this first verse this morning, is this. Am I following Jesus just because I'm on the bandwagon as long as it's relatively comfortable to be a Jesus follower in our day and age? Or... Am I ready to set my face to follow him, even when it includes great rejection? It's a question that's important for us to ask. Um, I think sometimes, though, we think we know our answer to that question. We think we know how we'll respond in the face of rejection. But when rejection actually comes, we find out something different about ourselves. And that's what happens next in verses 52 and 53. The disciples actually experienced rejection. A Samaritan village rejects Jesus. Let me reread that. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. A little background here. Jesus and his disciples are coming from Galilee up in the north. They're headed to Jerusalem down here in the south. As you can see on the map, the most direct route is through Samaria, right? But Samaria, here's where people live who are uh, not quite ethnically Jews, not quite religiously Jews, who um, believe different things. They are strange to Jewish people with some of their customs, and so... Over the years, the trip that usually was taken through Samaria to get to Jerusalem for the major feasts, Jewish people started to skip Samaria and go the long way around uh, out of their disdain for Samaritans. And concurrently with that, Samaritans, increasingly we know stories of Samaritans mistreating Jewish people who did venture through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. Um, We have stories of Jewish people getting stoned on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. We have stories of Jewish people even getting killed on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And so over time, by Jesus' day, it's become increasingly rare that any Jewish people from Galilee would still travel through Samaria to get there. Most would now take the long way and go around. But Jesus is different. He wants to go straight through, and he wants to minister to these people. And so in verse 52, he sends messengers ahead, which is a kind thing to do, but also a necessary thing to do because a small village could be overwhelmed by Jesus and his posse coming if they didn't uh, expect it. And then in verse 53, we have the only time in Luke's gospel when he says anything negative about the Samaritans. In most of Luke's gospel, he's motivated to uh, show the Samaritans in a different light than they were normally perceived in by Jewish people. They're usually the positive figures in this story, but this time there's nothing positive to say about the Samaritans in this particular village. Luke tells us the people in this village did not receive him. Now, we don't know if at first, maybe they tried to uh, make it a gentle rejection. You guys know about gentle rejections? We've all probably experienced it sometime. What's the classic gentle way to reject somebody? It's not you, it's me, right? So, so maybe at first they started to say, you know what, it's really just that we're just a small village, and we want to show you guys great hospitality, but we just feel like we aren't able to show you the hospitality that we would like to show you here in this village, and so it's just not going to work out, but it's not you, it's us. But either right away or eventually, somehow the conversation gets to what's really going on here. We find out why it actually is that Jesus is getting rejected. It's not actually because they don't have enough space. Why is it? Verse 53, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. In other words, they were offended by Jesus' Jewishness, and as long as Jesus was still determined to go to Jerusalem as a faithful Jew, they weren't going to have him there. There was no place for him in this Samaritan village. It's a reminder that not only Jewish people reject Jesus in Luke's gospel, not only Gentiles, all sorts of people reject Jesus, and it's no different from today, right? We know from experience that religious people reject Jesus, irreligious people reject Jesus. Jewish people reject Jesus. Professing Christians reject Jesus sometimes. Um... Men reject Jesus, women reject Jesus, gay people reject Jesus, straight people reject Jesus, all sorts of people reject Jesus all around us every day, and it seems like increasingly so, at least in the culture where we are living. So what do we do with that? Now, here's a clarification. I'm not talking about the sort of rejection that is people rejecting us for being rude as we vomit truth on people, right? That's different. I'm talking about the sort of rejection that is actually rejection of Jesus and his lordship over our lives. No matter how lovingly we put it, no matter how graciously uh, we enter into relationship with people, they still get to the point where they hear about the lordship of Jesus, how he wants to be master of everything in their lives, and they don't want it. So a couple examples. Uh, I'm talking about the person who would say, I hear you saying that your Jesus is great. But if he says, I can't live with my boyfriend, then we've got nothing more to talk about. I just won't have anything to do with him. Or, we're talking about the person who says, I hear you say that your Jesus is loving, but if he says he's the only way to heaven, we don't have anything left to talk about. I'm not going to be a Jesus person. right, Friends, Please don't make the mistake of the Samaritans. If that's you this morning, if there's something about Jesus that just is a hang-up for you, that is just too offensive, that it feels like you can't get past it, just like the Samaritans had this one thing that he's headed to Jerusalem, he's a faithful Jew, they just couldn't get past it. No matter what the disciples told them about how loving Jesus was, how he wasn't prejudiced against Samaritans like other Jews were, it didn't matter. If he was headed to Jerusalem, there was no place for him in this village. Friends, don't be one of those people who rejects God in the flesh, who's come to minister his love to you because there's something about him that's offensive. Listen, when God comes and takes on human flesh and becomes a human being, there is going to be something offensive about him to you. If your God never offends you, that's not the real God. That's a God you've made up in your mind, in your own image, to butter you up on all the things that you actually believe in. If God is real and if he really came to be a human being, he is going to offend each and every one of us at some point. He's going to challenge us. He's going to call us out on things and make us uncomfortable at points. Don't let that be the reason why you turn away from him and won't receive him like the Samaritan village didn't receive him. But I know many of you have received him. um, Despite being offended by him at times, despite the ways in which he has challenged how you naturally are, you have received him into your heart. And we praise God for that. And if that's you, we want to finish our third section of the text putting ourselves in the shoes of the disciples and thinking about, okay, now, now how do we respond to rejection? How do we respond when we're rejected along with Jesus? Verses 54 through 56, we see that Jesus rebukes a response to rejection. and There's going to be something instructive in that for us. Let's reread it. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, it being the rejection that took place in that Samaritan village, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Seems like James and John felt some kind of way about this village of people who rejected Jesus. They, James and John, are zealous followers of Jesus. They uh, are committed to Jesus. And in their minds, this Samaritan village had their chance, but now it's case closed. The verdict is in. They had their chance. They blew it. And now it's time to wipe these people off the map. But did they evaluate the situation rightly? We have to say no, because Jesus rebukes them. Um, But here's the question. I think we have to press into the question of why exactly did Jesus rebuke them, We know they were wrong for wanting to call down fire from heaven, but why exactly were they wrong? And I think if we get the answer to that question wrong, we could leave here this morning um, with inappropriate responses to rejection in our own hearts that don't ever get corrected because we've gotten wrong why Jesus rebukes James and John. So we're going to spend a few minutes here together if you'll hang with me, exploring different possibilities of why maybe Jesus rebuked James and John. What exactly did they do wrong when they were asking to call down fire from heaven? It may not be as obvious as we think. I think there's going to be something instructive in this for us. So uh, six possibilities. Some of you are like, I don't understand why this is so complicated. Anytime you find yourself calling down fire from heaven on someone, you're just wrong. The problem with this, as an explanation for Jesus' rebuke, is that there's this guy Elijah in the Old Testament who came to this same place, Samaria, and he was very close to God. He was a prophet, and when soldiers came to arrest him, he called down fire from heaven on them and burned him up toast just like that. Not only is this Elijah never rebuked for that in the scripture, he gets taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire at the end of his life because God doesn't even want to let him die. That's how pleasing his life was to God. So it can't just be wrong in all times and all places, all circumstances to call down fire from heaven on people. That can't be the reason for Jesus' rebuke. Next, maybe you'd say, well, that was the Old Testament. This is the New Testament. That was the Old Testament God. This is the New Testament Jesus. And Jesus is all about love, not judgment. That explanation may seem appealing on the surface, but the problem is when you read the whole New Testament, you see a picture of Jesus that's not quite so simple. Yes, he is all about love. But have you ever read Revelation chapter 14? If you haven't, here's the New Testament picture of Jesus established in Revelation chapter 14. He comes in a future day riding on a horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, slaughtering his enemies until the blood in the streets runs as high as the horse's bridle. So our idea that Jesus is all about love, not judgment, runs into some problems in Revelation 14. can't just be that. Third, maybe there's a time and a place for judgment, calling down fire from heaven, but the problem was that James and John took this particular situation, this particular sin, too seriously. This particular sin of rejection didn't warrant fire from heaven. And Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm going to get rejected, it's cool. But we remember the Elijah story. That can't be it either, can it? Because if fire from heaven was warranted for rejecting Elijah, how much more is fire from heaven warranted when God comes in human flesh to bring his love to people and they reject him? Actually, James and John were right about what this deserved. They weren't wrong about that part. This did deserve fire from heaven, and they weren't taking this particular sin too seriously. That's not it. You still with me? A couple more possibilities. Maybe we think it's always sinful to ask God to judge. Like, we should be asking him for mercy, and if he wants to judge, he'll judge. But The problem with that is that there are some psalms, Psalm 69, 106, the imprecatory psalms we call them, in which the psalmists are calling out in Scripture uh, for God to bring judgment. And those psalms are quoted in the New Testament. They are part of the Scriptures that are profitable for us for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so it can't just be that. Here's where most of the commentaries settle. Here's what most of the commentaries say is the reason why Jesus rebukes James and John. And again, we're filtering all this through our own rejection, thinking of how we respond to rejection, right? Commentaries will say, well, the problem with James and John is that their timing is wrong. It's not time for judgment yet. That's what they get wrong, and that's what Jesus rebukes. Now, I do think their timing is wrong. But when I read this as an explanation, it was unsatisfying to me because here's why. Jesus rebukes them, right? If their ideas of fire from heaven are right on, and their ideas of Jesus are right on, and their heart's in the right place, they just got the timing a little off, does that really warrant a rebuke from Jesus? Does that really seem like Jesus to rebuke people for getting their timing a little bit wrong? I didn't think so. I thought maybe that could just be a gentle redirect. And then I was alerted to Revelation chapter 6, and that confirmed for me that this isn't the issue that makes Jesus rebuke James and John. Here's what happens in Revelation chapter 6. Summary, this is taking place in our era. There are martyrs, people who have been killed for their faith, up in heaven, um, under the altar, and they're crying out to God for judgment, for what's been done to them. And here's what happens here. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. Here's what they say. "O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay, what happens here? Just like James and John... They cry out for justice and judgment. Just like James and John, it's not time yet. But they're perfect, sinless. They are in heaven, right? And do they get rebuked for it? No, not only do they not get rebuked for it, they get a new set of clothes, right? So the explanation that Jesus rebukes James and John because their timing is wrong just falls short. That makes me want to go looking for something else in this text. Some other clue that Luke has embedded in this text for us that would show us what exactly is wrong with what James and John say when they ask to call down fire from heaven. I think Luke does give us that in the immediately preceding passages. So if you flip back a few verses, I'll put it up on the screen. It might be hard to see, though. So you just go back to verse 46. The two stories that directly precede our story for today. Here are the two stories right before it. Verse 46, an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. They're walking along the road, and what they're consumed with is arguing about which of them is the greatest. Next story, Jesus corrects that, and then they jump into just going further and further into error. Here's what John says. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. John thinks he's going to get a pat on the back. Jesus said to him, don't stop him. For the one who's not against you is for you. Do you see what's happening in the two stories right before this one? Luke shows us right before this passage that the disciples are consumed with self. Which of them is the greatest? And then they're consumed with not only themselves making sure they look great, but making sure nobody else looks great either. They're trying to police who's able to do ministry in Jesus' name and make sure it's only them that gets the credit. I think by Luke giving us this insight into the heart of the disciples at this moment and then launching into verses 51 through 56 tells us exactly why James and John are asking to call down fire from heaven. It's not that they have this pure motive to vindicate the name of Jesus. There's so much self involved. Their motives are wrong for wanting to see judgment. They are personally offended by these, these ungrateful Samaritans, how dare they not receive us when we're coming here with the truth and God in the flesh? Let's wipe them out. Right? You see that? I think it's important for us then when we find ourselves in a situation like many of us do in which we've been rejected and we feel angry or we feel rejected and we find ourselves wanting The worst for the person who rejected us. We find ourselves this justice impulse welling up within us. We find ourselves wanting to pray that God's judgment will come swiftly. I think it's important not that we just dismiss that right away, but that we ask ourselves what our motives really are for wanting to see that judgment, right? So maybe just some heart-probing questions to really get to this in our own lives as we're exploring our own motives for wanting to see judgment, it's probably helpful to think of a specific situation in which you've wanted to see judgment when you've asked for God to bring his judgment on somebody who rejected you. Think about these things. How much of my desire for vengeance is that, first? I've been personally offended or wronged, and I want to be publicly vindicated. Right. To the extent that that's there, that's a problem. How much of it is that I feel insecure because Christianity's privileged position in America is slipping away? I don't want it to slip away. I want to hold on tight, do whatever I can to hold on to it. How much of my desire for vengeance is that I'm not satisfied just being great, I want to be seen to be great. And these people who are not acknowledging my greatness are getting in the way of me having the status that I want. Or what about this last one? How much of my desire for vengeance is that I'm quicker to condemn those who are unlike me than I am to condemn those who are like me. That one will hit hard if you let yourself think about it. Isn't that what James and John do? How many of their fellow Jewish people had rejected Jesus to this point? And how many times did James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven against their fellow Jewish people? But then a Samaritan village does it, and they're ready to bring the thunder, right? They're ready to wipe them off the map. Don't sociologists tell us that we're all prone to that, right? That we're quicker to condemn people who we perceive to be other from us, unlike us, for the same crime as somebody who's like us. We're quick to the trigger when somebody's ethnically or religiously or culturally unlike us. The thing is, Jesus is just the opposite. He's reserved his harshest words for those who were insiders, the ones who people expected him to align with. To the extent that we're not like Jesus in that way, to the extent that we're quicker to condemn those unlike us, we need to repent and to ask God to replace that impulse in our heart with a desire to extend grace. I want to just illustrate this, just to make sure we really got it. Um, I'm almost acting it out in a way, okay? So the difference between James and John calling for justice on one hand, and the martyrs in Revelation 6 calling for justice on the other hand. Both of them are asking God to judge. It's not time yet. Here's the difference. With James and John, is this. Fists clenched. Teeth gritted. Do you want us to send down fire from heaven? They're seething. We'll teach these ungrateful Samaritans a lesson. We'll show them never to do this again. All right, that's one way. Revelation six: the martyrs, hands are open, under the altar, and they're crying out desperately, "How long, O oh Lord? How long until you show yourself holy? How long until you show yourself to be the God of justice that you are? Don't wait any longer." You see the difference? In the life of Christian discipleship, there may be a time for this, open-handed pleading with God for judgment. In the life of Christian discipleship, there's never a time for this, the fist-clenched self-driven anger to see uh, our personal offenses righted. So our big idea today is this. Despite the rejection that I think we'll increasingly experience, Let's extend grace as we offer Christ to the world. Despite rejection, let's extend grace as we offer Christ to the world. When we are rejected, when people call us intolerant bigots, for example, the easiest thing to do is to call down fire from heaven, or whatever the equivalent of that is in a Facebook post. right? But as we're furiously typing away at those keys— if we look inside and allow ourselves to do a little self-exploration, we might realize that the impulse driving that in our hearts isn't really any different from the impulse that James and John experienced that was calling them to, causing them to call down fire from heaven, which they were rebuked by our Lord Jesus for. We instead, as disciples of Jesus, have the privilege not of calling down fire from heaven, but of extending grace. And we use that term extending grace because that's exactly what it is. It's not a call to extend, to uh, give to others anything that we haven't ourselves first received. In order to make this point uh, as we wrap up and talk about the how of doing this, I think we need to zoom out from our passage and remember what happens in the whole course of Luke's gospel. Think about it. These disciples who are so indignant here in chapter 9 at the Samaritans' rejection of Jesus. What do they do just a few chapters later? Don't they reject Jesus themselves? When he goes to his suffering and death, when he gets to Jerusalem, don't they scatter and flee? And don't they even at points call down curses upon themselves in order to just so firmly dissociate themselves from Jesus. They weren't wrong about the Samaritans deserving fire from heaven. They just forgot that they deserved fire from heaven too. And so do you and I. We deserve the same fire from heaven for our own propensity to reject the God who came to earth to die in your place and in mine. Because we forget about our own need for grace, we fail sometimes to extend that grace to others. But if we're truly followers of Jesus, we will increase in our realization that we need grace. And we will increase in our desire to extend that, that uh, grace to others. But let's remember, this grace won't be offered indefinitely. The day is coming and Jesus will crack the sky and come back in judgment. And those who remain his enemies until that day, those who have persisted in rejecting him, his judgment will come on them. But in the interim, with every moment that we have between now and then, let's be the sort of people who extend God's offer of grace from the heart of Jesus who hopes that as many as possible will come to know him. The only reason we can extend that offer of grace is because Jesus saw this mission to completion. He did set his face to Jerusalem. He went all the way there. He took the final and ultimate rejection in your place and in mine. And as a result, we now will face God at the end of our lives, not hearing a word of rejection, but hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Something that we never deserved to hear. This Jesus took the punishment that James and John deserved, even though they thought the Samaritans deserved. it. He took the punishment that you and I deserved, and now we get the privilege of spending the rest of our lives extending it to others, just like James and John spent the rest of their lives extending this grace. Those of us who have been recipients of this grace, let's continue extending it to others until Jesus returns and that window of time has expired for his enemies. To be recipients of the same grace we've received. Let's pray. Lord, we're overwhelmed remembering again our own rejection of you, our own continued propensity to reject you that you died to save us from. We're so grateful. That we will get to be with you forever, not rejected by our Heavenly Father, but accepted, embraced, even included in his family because of what you did for us on that cross. Help us to be so motivated by the grace we've received that we can't help but extend it to others, even those who reject us. In Jesus' name, amen.